we've made some comments about the church in Colossae, how that it was one of a triumvirate, if you like, of churches, three congregations that were probably founded under the ministry of the Apostle Paul, though there is evidence, even internally in Scripture, that Paul never visited Colossae. He certainly hints at the fact that he didn't know those people or they didn't know him by sight. Uh, they knew him not uh, by face. But the Lord used Paul's ministry to get this work started. When you read Acts chapter 19 and verse number 10, the scripture says this, And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And certainly that statement would lead us to believe that the church at Colossae and those other congregations I mentioned were affected by the preaching of the Apostle. Now when we come to Colossians, one of the things that will interest us right away is the similarity within the book to the book of Ephesians. When you read both of these epistles together and you compare them and contrast them, you will see that there's quite a bit of repetition and many of the same subjects are spoken of. If you read both of these letters together, you will see, for example, that in Colossians 1.14, the quotation is given, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And that's reminiscent of Ephesians chapter one and verse 7 in whom we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace if you look at Colossians chapter 2 verse 13 the reference is and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses that reminds us of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 and verse 5. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And again, you consider Colossians chapter 3 and what it has to say in verse 16 about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. That reminds us so very much of Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 5 and 6, where the scripture speaks of this same thing, the psalms and the hymns, and the spiritual songs is actually Ephesians 5 and verse 19. I got the reference wrong here. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. What I meant to say was, in Ephesians chapters 4, 5 and 6, you have a lot of the same material that you have in Colossians chapter 3. Not just this 
about the Psalms and the hymns and the spiritual songs, but other things, the teaching, for example, about the family, wives, submit yourselves, husbands, love your wives, children, obey your parents. You see all of this in Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter 6. So there's quite a bit of similarity. Ephesians and Colossians were probably written at about the same time. And they may actually have been delivered on the same occasion by two men, Onesimus and Tychicus. We may say more about those men in another message. But the thing about Colossians that we should note is that it is essentially a letter of correction. It's a letter of correction. As we indicated, Epaphras had told Paul that there were potential problems in the church because of false teachers that had come in. And so there was this warning from Paul to beware of false doctrine and those who teach it. And also at the same time, he gave a reminder to the believers there that all they need is in Christ. That Christ is all. That Christ is all sufficient. And that's a truth that you and I need to remember in our day. There are so many who want to add on to Christ. You need this, and you need that, and you need the other thing in your life. But in actual fact, when you have Christ, you have all that you need. Christ is the answer to every need of the human heart. The epistle itself divides very easily into two sections. I think we mentioned already this, but we will repeat it. You have the doctrinal, chapters 1 and 2, and you have the practical, chapters 3 and 4. It's very easy to remember. Doctrine, chapter 1 and 2. Practice, or conduct, chapters 3 and 4. Now the epistle begins with an introductory salutation. Paul is greeting the people, and he just simply says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. It has been commented upon how Christ-centered Paul's opening remarks were. He speaks about the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is an apostle by the will of God. And then he says, the letter is to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. And then he says this, grace be unto you. That's a Gentile greeting. And peace, which is a Jewish greeting. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the mention of Christ three times in the first two verses. He's an apostle of Christ. He's writing to brethren in Christ. And he speaks about the work of Christ. Grace and peace. They come from Christ. And that sets the tone for the whole book. Right away, the apostle is focusing their attention upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That is so important. Now, 
There are four things really brought before us in the opening verses. I want to deal with two of them tonight. The first of these is, it's very simple, the greetings that were extended. Note how Paul writes to these people. He doesn't get up on his high horse. He doesn't take a superior attitude toward them. He doesn't start speaking eloquently about all of his credentials. He just simply says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And he joins to that the name of Timotheus or Timothy. Here are the greetings that were extended to the church. It was customary in that day and age to begin by identifying the writer. And that's just the way they did things in those days. In our day, we attach our name to the end of the letter. Paul and others like him would have attached their name at the beginning. So mention is made right away in these greetings of the preacher. Paul. Now who was Paul? Well, he is one of the outstanding characters, if not the outstanding character of the New Testament. A mighty preacher of the word. But a man who, because of his stand for Christ, now has to write to a church from a prison cell. He's incarcerated by the Romans. But he's a man who, if he is not able to preach publicly, is still able to be mighty with his pen. And so he uses that pen to write to the people. It could be that he used what's called an amanuensis. He dictated the words. They were written out by someone else, but nonetheless they are Paul's words from the Lord. But note about this preacher that his authority is referred to. Paul, an apostle. The word apostle literally means one who is sent. Or a sent one. One who is sent. And obviously in Paul's case he was chiefly, though not exclusively, the apostle to the Gentiles. You go back in your Bible to Acts chapter 9. To where Paul, when he was Saul of Tarsus, was converted. And what a tremendous work of grace was done there. You know, it's not that Paul was intending that day to get saved that he set out for Damascus at looking for Christ, looking for salvation. He did nothing of the sort. He was actually on the devil's errand that day. But the Lord stepped into his life. And when the Lord dealt with him, Acts 9, 6 says, He trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? This is a man who wasn't interested in doing anything for Christ, but against Christ. It was a hater of the Savior. And yet here he is. Lord, what will thou have me to do? It's unbelievable. So unbelievable that later when he tried to join himself to the church, the people of God didn't allow him. They thought that this was a ruse. They thought that this was some kind of a trick that was being played they knew this man, being a persecutor of the saints, was not interested in the things of Christ other than to try to destroy them. But the Lord has done a work in his heart. And so the Lord, in Acts chapter 9, saves him. 
And he commissions him, Acts 9 verse 15. But the Lord said unto him, this is to Ananias, Go thy way, for he, that's Saul of Tarsus, later to become Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles, notice that, and kings and the children of Israel. He was going to be the apostle chiefly to the Gentile peoples. And when we come to Acts 22, there is a rehearsal of this testimony. And he actually employs these words concerning what the Lord spoke to him at that time. Acts 22:21. Paul says, And he said unto me, that's the Lord, said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. This is going to be your ministry, Paul. This is the work that I've given to you. Now, the Colossians were Gentiles, as were the other people of those other cities that I mentioned. So he has this authority. He's an apostle. And it is by the will of God. Notice his appointment then is mentioned. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Paul didn't put himself into the ministry. Paul didn't call himself to be a preacher. He was called by God and he was sent to preach. Someone said it this way, Paul attained his high office not by aspiration or usurpation, nor nomination by other men, but by divine preparation. He didn't put himself into the ministry. It's not something that he aspired to. He didn't enter upon that office as a usurper, as an imposter. He wasn't an apostle just because other men said they thought he should be an apostle. But he was prepared by God for that work. The Lord set him apart. And that's true of every man of God who's ever in the ministry of Christ, who should be in the ministry, who is rightly a minister of the gospel, He is set apart by the sovereign will of God to this work. And when we're praying for pastors, for the flock of God, we're praying for preachers, we need to pray for men who are called by the will of God to the work. Not men who fancy themselves as preachers. Who think when they're sitting in the pew, oh, I could do that. I could do that. I think I'll become a pastor. I think I'll become a minister. No. We need men who have the conviction given to them by the Lord. This is a work that I must do. I can't do anything else. It was Spurgeon who used to say to a young man who would come forward for his pastor's college for training. He used to say to them, young man, if you can do anything else but preach and still be happy... Stay away from the ministry. Because you're not called, if that's the case. But if, like Jeremiah, you have a fire burning in your soul, and you cannot but speak, you have to do this. That's an indication of the call of God. Now, Paul said similar things to what he said to the Colossians back in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 1. This time he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle 
separated unto the gospel of God. And in verse 5 he says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Called of God. The same thing can be seen in the epistle to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle, look at the words in parenthesis, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised them from the dead. And he goes on to speak of that call later in this chapter. The gospel that he preached, for example, he said he didn't receive it from men. He wasn't taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 15 of Galatians 1, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Called of God. So Paul's authority is referred to, his appointment is referred to. He's a preacher of the word. But you'll notice he mentions as well in these greetings, the partner and Timotheus, our brother. Now when he says our brother, he doesn't mean his sibling. He means his spiritual brother. Timothy, my brother in Christ. That's what he means. Now Timothy was the constant companion and fellow laborer with the Apostle Paul in Asia. It's possible, indeed it's highly likely, that Timothy evangelized along with other people in that region. He was a man who was known to the church at Colossae. And at this time he was in Paul's vicinity. And thus he wished to greet the Colossians. And he may have asked Paul if he could have his name attached to that letter. And Paul agreed to that, but the letter is chiefly from Paul himself to the church. And he adds the name of Timothy as a courtesy to him. But this is a word from Paul the preacher to the people. So we see the preacher, we see the partner. And by the way, Timothy was a man of whom Paul said there was none like him as far as ministry was concerned. He had nobody like him who was like-minded as he was. He wrote that to one of the other churches. But notice the people. In Colossians 1 verse 2, they're described as the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. To the saints, it literally means in the original, holy ones and faithful brethren in Christ. So there's a twofold description of the people here. They were fellow believers. They're called saints. Now, the word saint means one who is holy or a holy one. And it literally refers to those who are set apart to be holy. The word saint and the word sanctify are quite connected. But when you talk about someone being a saint or a collective group being saints, it's a description of their position in Christ. That's why they're called saints. 
not because the Pope decided that they were to be beatified. It's not because the Pope decided that they had enough brownie points gathered to be called saints. No. They are people who have been brought into Christ by grace. They're holy ones. This describes their position. But yet, having said that, we who are saints should seek to live up to that name. If we're called holy ones, then we need to act like holy ones. And we're back to what we talked about this morning in Leviticus and in the corresponding words in 1 Peter chapter 1. What did God say to the people through Peter? As it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. As he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. If God refers to us as holy ones, as saints, we ought to seek to live up to that name. Now we're not going to be able to do that perfectly in this life. Sometimes you'll hear someone say colloquially, Oh, you see that fellow is a real saint. And we know what they mean. But we ought to be seeking to live up to that name. Holy ones, a holy people. A separated people. A people who are different. Not that we want to go about drawing attention to ourselves because we're weird. That's not holiness. But saints are people who are set apart to be holy. So Paul writes to the people, fellow believers, but he also adds this, that they were faithful brothers. To the saints and faithful brethren. Not just brethren, but faithful brethren. In other words, true and steadfast members of the brotherhood. Those who were in Christ. Now obviously, physically, they were in the city of Colossae. Geographically, that's where they were. That's where they lived. So he could have said, to the saints and brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, he could have left the in Christ part out and just said to the saints and faithful brethren which are at Colossae, but he didn't. He said in Christ, which are at Colossae. That's not a contradiction, that's complementary truth. Yes, they were at Colossae, but they were in Christ. Physically, in that city. Spiritually, in Christ. That's the standing of all believers. Tonight we're in the small town of Walnutport, Pennsylvania, or wherever it is that you are watching on or listening on to the message. But are you in Christ? Because to be in Christ is a spiritual standing that is enjoyed by all believers. We are in Christ. That wasn't always true. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians in that corresponding passage, he talked about a time when they were without Christ. He told them that they ought to remember that. That at that time, Ephesians 2 verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ. That means outside of Christ. 
You were out of Christ. You weren't in Christ. You were outside of Christ. That's the way it is with people who are not saved. They're out of Christ and without a Savior. But then he says, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You were without Christ. You were outside of Christ. Now you're in Christ. What a wonderful standing that is. But it's also true, and Colossians 1 verse 27 makes this clear, that not only are we in Christ, but Christ is in us. See this? Colossians 1 verse 27. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. What a great thing that is. Are we set apart for God? Are we saints? Are we to be described as faithful brothers or sisters in Christ? When you look at that word, brethren, faithful brethren, it's obviously referring to brothers. It's a family word. And so this title refers to the family of God, to the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that body being many are one body, so also is Christ. All part of a big family. If you're saved tonight, You're part of a large family. The family of God. Do we seek to show that? Do we seek to manifest that in our lives? 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 9 and 10 says this, But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. See, it comes naturally, you might say it comes supernaturally to the believer. And indeed ye do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that ye increase more and more. Family love. We're to manifest the fact that we're saints and faithful brethren in Christ. By loving one another. But as well as the preacher and the partner and the people, in these greetings, we see mention made of the provisions. This is a great desire that Paul has for the Colossians. And he expresses it in this way in verse 2. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to experience the grace of God and the peace of God. Now when we think about grace, we immediately are brought to consider God's sovereign, free, unmerited undeserved favour that has been bestowed upon us grace and then there's peace peace which is the assurance of our reconciliation to God through the blood of the cross and notice that the order is really important it's grace and peace there can be no peace where there is no experience of grace. 
The Old Testament reminds us in the book of Isaiah that there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. You can't have peace of heart. You can't have the peace of knowing that if you were to die, that you'd go to be with Christ if you're not in Christ. There's no peace when there's no experience of grace. But when we think about the grace of God, we not only think about the saving grace of God, we also think about the sustaining grace of God. And that's what Paul, I think, has in mind here. He's not desirous that these people would experience saving grace because they already have. He's writing to them as saints, as holy ones. They've already experienced saving grace. When he says grace unto you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, he's referring to this grace that may continue to be poured out upon Christians. That the Lord will give them grace. Paul knew that in his own life when he had some troubles. God told him, my grace is sufficient for thee. He's not talking about saving grace. He's talking about sustaining grace. Keeping grace. And Paul desires that that grace of God and that peace of God would continue to be the portion of the Colossian Christians. You see, they needed, as we need today, grace to live each day in this evil world. They needed grace for every trial. Grace sufficient at all times for whatever would come their way. Grace that comes from God in Christ. And we can experience that. When we think of believers who are bereaved, they lose a very close loved one. When we pray for them, what do we pray for? We pray the Lord will give them grace. That He will give them grace for each day. Help in their time of need. And this grace may be accompanied with peace. We can have the peace of God in our hearts, even when all around us there is turmoil. The peace of God, that's referred to there in Philippians 4, Verse 7, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That word keep is a word that suggests a garrison. It's like a company of soldiers standing guard. The Lord is able to keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus and give you peace when there's turmoil all around. He's able to do that. And Paul expresses a desire for this for the Colossians in these opening verses. But from the greetings that are extended to the church, I want you to see the other thing here that's before us from verse 3 down to verse 5. And it's the gratitude that was expressed. Thanksgiving. He says, verse 3, we give thanks. We give thanks. We're thankful. To God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which you have to all the saints, we give thanks to God for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. Paul is thankful. He expresses this gratitude. And by the way, you will notice later on in the book, that what he possesses himself 
thankfulness, he demands from them. Chapter 3, verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. He says, I'm thankful. So you be thankful. Thanksgiving can become a lost art, even among Christians. How prone we are to moan and complain. Yet there are so many things for which we should and can be thankful. Think of that hymn that we often sing. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. When I feel like complaining about something, I need to sit down and start enumerating the blessings of God. My wife has a little book that she keeps at home. She calls it her encouragement book. And it's filled with references to things that have happened in our lives that have encouraged us. And it's really good sometimes just to take that down and to look at it and think, wow, look, look what the Lord did there. Look what the Lord did in that instance. Remember how the Lord did that? Because you see, we forget. We forget how good the Lord has been. When we've had a need, and we didn't know how that need was going to be met, and the Lord stepped in and met that need. That's something to be thankful for. Paul was a thankful preacher. And you'll see this kind of terminology over and over again in his epistles. We give thanks. Or we are bound to give thanks. All the way to God for you brethren. Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when Paul was telling God's people how to pray. He said, I exhort, verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 2. I exhort therefore that first of all supplications, prayers, intercessions, yes and Giving of thanks be made for all men. Giving of thanks. And be ye thankful. In Paul's case, the gratitude that was expressed was something constant on his part. Notice the constancy of his gratitude. We give thanks to God praying always for you. He was always praying and he was always thankful. Do we always give thanks? Again, this is the Lord's demand of us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 18 In everything give thanks. But pastor, I don't feel like giving thanks for that. Doesn't matter. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. We can be thankful for things that take place that we don't like. That go against the grain. We need to be thankful. How the Lord needs to work in our hearts to give us that thankfulness. The comment was made once by one of the Puritans that oftentimes we forget about an ocean full of mercies because of the presence of one drop of affliction. Isn't that true? 
sometimes we want to be complaining about the one thing we don't have and forget about all the things that we do have thank God for his blessings thank God for the fellowship of other Christians Paul thanked the Lord for the Colossians that's what he says here we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints he was thankful for that and for the hope that is laid up for you in heaven he was thankful for that thanking God for these believers in Colossae but we can turn this around and think about this do you give and do I give other believers a good reason to thank God for us do we give others a good reason to thank the Lord that we're in their lives that they have any association with us the constancy of Paul's gratitude is here praying always for you but the causes of his gratitude are here and I just mentioned them he said he had heard of their faith that suggests that what I said last week is true he had never actually probably met the Colossian Christians but he had heard about them he had heard the reports from Epaphras and others the people in Colossae are faithful folk they've got faith in Christ and they have a great love to all the saints and they have a hope laid up for them in heaven these are the things that Paul is thankful for their testimony was such that he just had to thank the Lord for them just imagine him there on his knees Lord thank you for that little church in Colossae for those faithful people he thanked the Lord for their faith certainly that would include its commencement when he says since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus that would certainly include the faith that saved them the faith that brought them into the possession of eternal life he could thank the Lord that they were saved by faith that they had been brought to trust in Christ so he's thankful for their faith and its commencement but he's also thankful for their faith and its continuation because they were living by faith since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus that is a, a living ongoing faith when Paul wrote to the Corinthians he talked about this for we walk by faith not by sight that's how we live we live by faith and then he's thankful to the Lord for their love and of the love which ye have to all the saints don't you love the people of God sometimes we can have reasons to fall out with other Christians just like in a family I've never seen a family that was a natural ordinary family just a regular family where they didn't have falling outs I have three siblings and we didn't always get along and there were times when that snotty little brother gave them problems and in the case of my younger sister when my snotty little sister gave me problems and when my older bossy sisters gave me problems but well dare anybody else come to try to do anything to any of my sisters I'd go to bat for them every time 
I would defend them every time. I'd never take somebody else's part against my sisters. And I don't think they would allow anybody to come and do anything to their brother. That's just the way it was. Why? Because there's a love in the family that transcends everything else. And sometimes we can be unloving, we can be unlovely, and cause people not to have cause to love us, but yet we should seek to love one another and seek to be lovable. Notice their love to all the saints, all of God's people. They had a love in their hearts for other Christians. And this is important for us to note. He puts together these two. Verse 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have told us since. Faith and love. Doesn't the Bible talk about faith which worketh by love? They belong together. Galatians 5 verse 6. You know that love for God is proved by our love for his people. You say you're a lover of God? Okay. Look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 from verse 20. If a man say, here's a profession, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? It's very clear. You say you love God, well then you you should love the brethren. And if you don't love the brethren, how can you love God? This commandment have we from him, verse 21 says, that he who loveth God, love his brother also. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat... Loveth him also that is begotten of him. In other words, when you love the father, you love the children. You love the offspring of the father. That's the way it is. Note, Paul mentions the beneficiaries of the love of the Colossians. All the saints, the people of God, Christians. But you'll also notice... The breadth of that love. He doesn't just say that they love the saints, but they love all the saints. All the saints. Why do we love all the saints? Because the Lord loves them all. That's why. There are people who the Lord loves. They're going to be in heaven along with us. And we are to love them. Does it mean we always agree with them? No, it doesn't. There are times when brothers walk disorderly. You want to make sure that you're not that brother that walketh disorderly, but there may be a brother who walks disorderly. There may be a a necessity for you at times to withdraw yourself from another believer who's not walking in the right way. That's scriptural. Some people don't seem to like that sort of doctrine, but it's biblical. The Apostle Paul certainly believed in it. He taught it. And you can just look at the epistles, look at at what he wrote to the Thessalonians. Uh, For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and in verse 14 and 15, he says this, 
And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. See that? Here's someone who is a professing believer. He is apparently a true child of God, but there's an area in which he's not obeying the Lord. And we're not to just cast a blind eye to that, but we're to admonish him as a brother. Now that's not a popular thing sometimes. Uh, For example, you look at what Paul wrote to the Galatians, and he said, Galatians 6 verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, and it's obvious that he's referring to a Christian man, he's referring to a believer here. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, and that rules a lot of people out right away, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. So, someone steps out of line spiritually, the Lord gives you an opportunity to minister to that person and say, hey, you know, that's not right. That's not right what you're doing. But you don't take a high and mighty attitude to them. But as the Bible says here, you restore such a person as that in a spirit of meekness. You're to consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. Don't be thinking, well, I would never do that. You must be conscious of the fact that you could do that. You could be that that guilty party, but you're not. You're seeking to help the one who has stepped out of line, and you're seeking to restore that person. Not to cut them to pieces, to restore them. That's love. That's an expression of love. That's the outworking of love. What am I saying here? All the saints, even those that are hard to love. And that might be us sometimes. We must love even those saints of God that are hard to love. Isn't it easy for you to express your love to your friends or to a select few? Didn't the Savior deal with that whole subject in Matthew 5? When he said, If you love them which love you, what reward have ye? If you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? That's to be expected. That you'll be nice to those that are your friends and acquaintances. But what about your enemies? He says, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. But here in Colossians, he's dealing with not men in general, as the Lord is dealing with there in Matthew 5. He's dealing with the sins. Our intrapersonal relationships with other Christians. We are to love all of God's people. And Paul was grateful for the Colossians that that's the kind of folks that they were. He said, I thank God for your faith. I thank God for your love. And he says, I'm thankful for your hope. And with this we will finish. Look at verse 5 of Colossians chapter 1. 
Again, as continuing the words of verse 3, we give thanks for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. You can't preach the gospel without preaching about heaven and hell. How do we know that there's a heaven? Because the gospel message gives us that information. There is a heaven. And there's a hope that's laid up for believers in heaven. What a great thing that is. We have a hope that's not just for time, but for eternity. The hope of heaven and the prospect of glory. How do we have that? Through the work of Christ. Through the precious blood that he shed for us upon the cross. That which we remember at the table. His body broken. His blood shed for our redemption. The hymn writer said, There is a green hill far away, without a city wall, where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. We may not know, we cannot tell what pains he had to bear, but we believe it was for us he hung and suffered there. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too. And trust in his redeeming blood and try his works to do. How do we have the hope of heaven? How do we know we're going to heaven? How did Paul know that the Colossians had a hope of heaven? Because they had faith in Jesus Christ. They'd been washed in the blood of the Lamb. He had made peace for them by the blood of his cross. And as he expounds this truth about Christ, he does so in such a way as to remind them that the hope of heaven and the prospect of glory that they have should make a great difference in the way that they lived in the world. That's why I say the first part of the epistle has to do with doctrine and the second part has to do with practice. Because he's telling them what their obligations are as believers in light of what Christ has done. Again, we go to chapter 2 and verse 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. Say you're saved. Then walk as a child of God. Chapter 3. If, it means since, ye then be risen with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Live in a different way. Put away sin. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. All of these things that he mentions by way of conduct are the obligations of grace. The hope of heaven should make a great difference in the way that we live in this world. Isn't that what Paul reminded Titus of? 
Turn to Titus chapter 2 and read from verse 11. The book of Titus chapter 2 from verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. See, the grace of God that saves you also teaches you. What does it teach you? That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. See, the hope of heaven is something that causes us to live differently. He goes on, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Grace that makes a difference in the life. Even as the Apostle John put it in 1 John chapter 3, in verses 2 and 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's the great hope. And every man that hath this hope in Him purifieth himself, even as He is pure. See that? See how the hope of heaven impacts the way that we live on this earth? And I might explain that this hope that Paul refers to in Colossians is not a mere wish. It's not wishful thinking. You know, you say to somebody, well, I hope, I hope you'll have a good week. Or I hope this, or I hope that. You're, you're wishing something that may or may not happen. But when Paul talks about the great hope that was set before the Colossians, he says, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, the idea behind that Greek word is not a mere wish, but it is a fervent yearning, a confident expectation, and a patient waiting. For God's promises to be fulfilled. In other words, it's sure and certain. There is a heaven. You are going there. This is a Christ-centered assurance. Colossians 1 verse 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's the hope of glory. It's because of his work at Calvary, the shedding of his precious blood, that we have this assurance that we will go to be with him forever and forever. This hope of heaven, it strengthens our faith and it motivates our love for the saints. Oh, that we might be known for these things, for our faith and our love. So that others, even in the church, will have cause to thank God for our Christian testimony. Will be thankful for the fact that they know us. They have an association with us. It's good for them to be with us and good for them to be associated with us. Because of our faith and hope in Christ. May the Lord bless his word to all of our hearts.